0: hi everyone welcome to another episode of divided films the podcast where we talk about movies that audiences and critics do not agree on uh my co-host keith is with me as always hello keith uh you know we're recording this before the oscars but we will be releasing this afterwards so you know we're just anticipating these academy awards again at the time of this recording it'll be this sunday but looking forward to also discussing the results afterwards and seeing which we agree and disagree with
1: um how about you are you excited i am i am i actually uh if i could promote uh uh i did uh i was a recent guest on our one of our guest Johnny della Luna's podcast the winning ticket and I actually got to explore the betting side of the Oscars but I came at it with such I have seen 95 percent of the nominees I, I think there's always one or two movies that just are hard to see or but uh I I mean I always like the awards I mean and I think if the Oscars decide to do things a little differently this year it could be a memorable one or it could just be an ordinary regular meandering one yeah it'll be interesting
0: because i think last year there, there was more of a case of people not having seen most of the nominations where this year i think feels a little more normal like a pre-covid theatrical year uh, so i know too you're also one who is usually ahead of the curve in terms of Seeing all the nominees, knowing which ones are most likely to win, because for me, I've seen maybe like a handful. I'm always I'm behind. I usually catch up after the awards, and I might learn about what more movies than I was aware of just from watching the ceremony. So we'll see. We'll catch up, and you maybe have an analysis afterwards. But uh, yeah, we're talking about one of the nominees today, and uh, that is Licorice Pizza. Uh, this movie falls into the category of having a positive score from critics and a mixed score from audiences. So on Rotten Tomatoes, 91% of critics approve, So very, very positive on that end, but uh, only 65% of audiences approved. So very mixed with that group. And the consensuses, because we have both critics and audience consensus, Critics say Licorice Pizza finds Paul Thomas Anderson shifting into a surprisingly comfortable gear and getting potentially star-making performances out of his fresh-faced leads. But the audiences say that Licorice Pizza might make you nostalgic for your own youth if you don't mind drifting through what passes for its plot, that is. So right off the bat, I think with what a lot of audiences are coming from is the so-called plot which maybe you could make an argument that there isn't much of a plot to Licorice Pizza. But then again, if you're a fan of Paul Thomas Anderson, you might be more used to looser plot structures and more into these dives into people's lives into specific periods of time and places. Uh, That's just right off the bat. That's the feeling I had watching this, that the average moviegoer who's used to more plot-driven narratives, this is definitely something different than what they'd be used to. But again, if you're well-versed in Paul Thomas Anderson's work, this is something that
1: you might be more expecting. I'm kind of surprised. I'm very surprised. But also, the more I read the audience reviews, the more I'm like, I always have to forget that Paul Thomas Anderson is... Not as popular. He has made like mainstream movies, but he's not Tarantino. And I and I would put them in the same category for me because when one of the when either of them or a director in that vein puts out a puts out a movie, it's like getting a new vinyl. Oh my god, it's like going to the music store and getting a new vinyl from your favorite band. I, Paul Thomas Anderson is one of my favorite filmmakers, if not like he's in my top three. He just, the way he writes, the way he directs, I, I love following his journey. That doesn't mean I give A pluses to everything that he's done. Um, like, I don't think Licorice Pizza is my favorite film of his, but I showed this to my parents the other night. And we all found a charm. I, I, I like this. Was, it was my second time seeing it. Uh, and it's charming. The writing is charming. You're able to look at it. You're he writes. Like, even if you love like There Will Be Blood or Boogie Nights, he writes characters and scenes. It's like going from one scene to the next. And there is. There is a plot happening. There is or at least character development. They Like you're seeing a sp- you're seeing young, lo- your first love in the San Fernando Valley in 1973, and you're seeing them get jealous. You're seeing them hate each other. You're seeing them, kind of one loving each other at the wrong time. It's a, it's an, uh, a nostalgic look, and he's you know he grew up in the San Fernando Valley, so it's very nostalgic for him. But it has a, it's definitely a throwback to like older films the way it's shot. I agree, it felt like a movie that could have been made
0: and released in 1973. So it definitely felt very authentic, felt very personal. i reading through some of your notes and doing my own research. Some some of these stories within the movie are based on real experiences either he or someone else he knows uh, has had. You get a sense that these are real personal experiences and also for the time period, I, I do get a kick out of seeing some of these uh touchstones of the early seventies, like when the Gary character is touring for a fictional version of yours, mine, and ours <laughs> under one roof, I think is yeah. the fictional version. It felt very much like what family movies were in the seventies. These very it, it was like a chitty chitty bang bang type musical, very cheesy, uh you know, and just the look, feel, sound. I think he just really captured the, the the setting perfectly as he is to do with, you know the rest of his the rest of his films. So I, I really like that. And I think with a lot of his movies, like this is a good example where he is he creates the characters and then he puts them in various kinds of situations and vignettes throughout the whole film, but it's more character driven than plot driven you could say and yeah there's there are certain moments that are more tense than others some are more light-hearted but you're just seeing how these characters react to different situations and them grappling with their feelings for each other so i think that's ultimately like the journey is an emotional one maybe not necessarily uh you know one particular objective happening in in the film but it's a journey of emotional growth and maturity and so it's more subtle. And I I, I enjoyed I, it. It's a thinker. I, I think I need to see it again to
1: really appreciate it. Well, his movies, in my opinion, always get better with each view- viewing. I would say even I was confused uh, the first time I saw Inherent Vice. And I think it's supposed to confuse you because it's a it's a it's written by Thomas Pinchon. It's it's there's a lot happening but you're like the character is not focused on the plot but then he jumps back in it's a very interesting noir 70s tale uh but you, you pick up on things with each view it gets better with each viewing i just uh re-watched the master i always love picking up on the character dynamics in that and uh, he has his things that he writes about whether it's California, whether it's messed up relationships, i.e. like Punch Drunk Love, The Master, uh, Phantom Thread, he has this unique way of writing. But uh, the reason why I appreciate him is most like if the movie if a movie like this was plot driven, you don't wear the plot on a shirt. You think about the characters and also got to give credit to both Cooper Hoffman and Alana Haim Haim who have never acted before outside maybe a music video. And, and honestly, I think Alana should have been nominated for an Academy Award. I think Bradley Cooper should have been nominated for that short, memorable, amazing scene as John Peters. You know what's so funny though, is that the marketing of this movie, which maybe I feel
0: like didn't know how exactly to market this film, they definitely overused Bradley Cooper in the trailers because he's not really in this movie for very long. He maybe has less than 10 minutes of screen time, which is fine. I don't mind that, but the trailers would have you believe that he's more prominent to the story, (laughs) which he's not. I think that's just like, oh, like recognizable stars because our leads are new finds. So that's like a typical thing marketing will do to push forward the recognizable actors. But I like that you only see... Oh, that makes sense, You have your bit with Bradley Cooper, you have your bit... You know with these characters here and there, it's the focus is on the main two leads and the d- different chapters with different groups of characters. Which I like, you have your one saga with the waterbeds, which is also very 70s. I, mean, I forgot waterbeds were even a thing. I think when I was a kid, I sat on a waterbed once <laughs> and that was it. uh Or you know, the whole bit with. With the mayor, and I thought it was cool that they got one of the Safety brothers in yeah, there. Yeah, he's really becoming
1: quite the actor. I've I've seen him in other stuff aside from his his role in Good Time, but he a lot of these are either real or were based off real people in that time. Yeah, that's you could tell because it feels so organic. It doesn't feel like
0: a contrived situation at all. I there are certain things where. There'll, there'll be like something that comes up and then you move on very quickly from it that, again, maybe think a lot about what what was the purpose of that? And I feel like I had to lose that mentality of what's the purpose of this, what's the purpose of that? Because that's not what this kind of film is where every single thing is A to B to C to D. It's just moments in these people's lives. So like, when he gets arrested, the the Gary character gets arrested for murder. He's like mistaken lee identified as a suspect and then he's immediately released it's like well what was that all about but you know it it does there's it's part of the emotional journey between the two does it necessarily have anything like you know is it super driven in that it has something to do with anything else in the story no but it doesn't have to it's it's something you have to let go as a viewer from
1: watching mainstream films well you kind of have to even it it feels like you're listening to a '70s album, and Licorice Pizza is like a vine. It it was the name of a record store, but it it that's what a record is. But you kind of have to. I'm not gonna say think a little too hard, but there is a lot going on underneath the surface with these characters. I mean, I, I all these situations have happened. Like they're not, they're they're outlandish, but they're not in, in, im Like they all like Gary Goetzman. Did was a young child actor. He was in yours, mine, and ours, and he did end up owning a pinball and waterbed store when he was very young. I found that very interesting. And I thought it was interesting that pinball
0: had been illegal yeah. in, in this in different parts of the country for a period of time. I that's something I didn't know it's about. It's like
1: little fun facts about uh, California at the time, and I I just think like the fact. That, like, right before that he he was so jealous rightly as every teen boy should be that you know when he goes to get hamburgers with his mom he sees uh, Alana out on a date and he calls. so they have this little flirtation at the expo and but she goes she goes to she follows him to the uh, to jail and tries to get like there's yeah, something yeah, exactly. there, there's and I bet all the time she is asking herself, Why am I doing this? This kid is 15. I mean, and we'll get I'm I'm sure we'll get into that because that was also in the audience reviews. But it's I always saw the the uniqueness about this relationship and um, is it's about a kid who wants to grow who is trying to grow up way too fast and a girl who's stuck in arrested development, who's quite not ready to grow up because she's acting like a teenager, even when she gets home and yells at her sisters, yells at her family. She's. and he's hustling and buying businesses. It's so interesting. So, how'd you become such a hotshot actor? I'm a showman. It's my calling. Yeah. I don't know how to do anything else. that's what I'm meant to do. I mean, ever since I was a kid, I've been a song and dance Come man. Come on. Ever since you were a kid, song and dance man. Where are your parents? My mom works for me. Oh, of course she does. Yes, she does that in my public sense. relations company. In your public relations <laughs>
0: company? because you have that yes and you're an actor yes and you're a secret agent too
1: well no i'm not a secret agent (laughs) that's funny
0: yeah it's it's like every one of those moments or chapters it centers around what their emotional takeaway is so for me like the, the alana character she's really going back and forth and grappling with wanting to be more mature and wanting to get on with an adult life but then also you know this newfound affection and eventual love she has for you know a 15 year old and yeah like you can maybe on paper that's 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 neither here nor there but I that you can you can see her grappling with that in every single scene, right like the the one really tense scene that I thought was signature, Pete D. Anderson was the the truck rolling down. Oh the my hill. god, that was I mean, amazing! Because he scene. that it was so good, and it, it kind of reminded me a little bit of the one scene in Boogie Nights with um, what's Alfred his name? Molina. Uh, also, one of my favorite Alfred scenes Molina.
1: in movie history.
0: Just in terms of having a very tense situation that you're just on the edge of your seat, which stands out from the rest of the movie, at least in this film that you don't really have that kind of tension throughout the rest but uh the takeaway from that at the end is yeah you know, she's really shooken up by that like any yeah. grown adult would be but the you know the this kid his his brothers are high-fiving each other they're pumped up <laughs> and it's really that's like a real turning point for her cuz after that you really see her try to pull away from him yes and move to it's so again like every single part of this movie you could say well Whereas a story going, it's the emotional journey, like seeing how their attitudes towards each other evolve in a
1: very natural and, I think, believable way. That And that's, I think, what's important to uh, the age aspect. I fi- like, she's not jumping on him. And he, like, it's mild flirtation in the beginning. And based on a experience that Paul Thomas Anderson's, like, the idea that sparked it, a young high school kid hitting on a, uh a, you know a woman in her 20s and he asks her out and she calls him like what happens if he asks her out and she calls him on his bluff that was like the what if origin of the idea but we right that that opening scene is the recreation of him witnessing
0: that and then everything after that is of his own invention which i like that i think i I got a sense of that too that that opening scene of the meeting him bugging her i did get a sense that That was something he had observed and now he is taking us into his own imagination of where that would have gone. But
1: uh, just little two points uh, about like the whole age thing, because I I think if you don't like it, you don't like it. And but. uh, Critics and audiences loved Harold and Maude, Maude, and that is an age difference right there. So don't Good point. I'm calling some people out on that. Um, And. I, with the emotional like she meets all types of men throughout the throughout the movie from the uh the Gary's co-star to Sean Penn's William Holden's character to Bradley Cooper who flirts with her during that tense scene I and to um to the mayor character who is you know she was. She was seen as like the golden girl in his eyes and he kind of c- turns out to be a justifier a justifiable jerk. I'll say that because I can totally emphasize but uh his um beard maybe I would say at the situation says I was about to say like he saw her as yeah, the Yeah, he says the the theme uh when she takes his I guess ex-boyfriend home because uh he says they're all shits they're all shits. All those guys. We're all shits. But Gary is, and Gary's a shit too, but he's a little different. He's a little different, he, and he gives a lot of confidence. Right, and that's the
0: thing too. It's, it doesn't matter how old some of these guys are. Some of them are more immature than Gary is. Yeah. Because yeah, you have Sean Penn's character. He's a fictional version of William Holden, I think. what, what His name is Jack Holden in the yeah, movie? Yeah, yeah. And and it's just funny that they had like there's a fictional version of Lucille Ball. They don't say she's Lucille Ball; it's Lucille Doolittle. And yet they use real John Peters. And uh... (laughs) right, interesting choices there. But with the William Holden type character, he was insane. Some of the dialogue that she has with some of these other guys, like the Sean Penn character, it is really surreal. Because they are, I, I think the what I, my takeaway was that they just want to hear themselves talk, these guys. And they're going on and on. And, yeah, they're interested in her on maybe a surface level. But they're not really interested in who she is or what she has to say. They just want to impress her or to validate their own idea of themselves. And it blows up in her face pretty much every time. So, yeah, she falls off the motorbike. And who's there to her aid, again, is Gary. And the guy, you know, I I half expected when Sean Penn was was jumping over the fire that he was going to, like, crash into it or something. But, you know, it's not that kind of movie, right, where someone's going to get, like, killed or injured or there's going to be, like, an action-type scene. Again, there's some tension there with the truck rolling down the hill. But for the most part it's not the kind of movie where there's like a big moment of someone getting shot or killed. It's the focus is on, you know, their, their journey together on themselves. I'm glad the focus never gets taken away and there's no jump the shark or jump the
1: fire type. No, I think, uh, well, Paul Thomas Anderson, I think no matter what genre he tackles, he does his best to really create standout characters, whether it's, you know, Daniel Plainview or Dick Dirk Diggler, um, and he has tried different stuff as a filmmaker. That I, uh, you can, like in Magnolia, you can always respect the frog, the frogs raining down upon the sky. I know some critics had no idea what to make of that scene when that came out, but uh, I think now he, he is, and he this is his second rom com, and even his first Punch Drunk Love is like a weird rom com in that it's like if one of Adam Sandler's characters was a real person.
0: Yeah, yeah. Like take take his Sandlerisms and filter it down to something that is more relatable, or at least make that into a
1: mentally ill man who who finds love. But this one is just, and uh, but this one is falls into the rom com category, and it just never, as insane as some of these scenarios get, it just never loses the focus of these characters just exploring. Love and I and I just found it charming. I like and I know uh, one movie that I would kind of compare it to, and I was shocked at the audience score on that. Is uh, and hear me out, folks. It's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Oh, you know I I will say that I
0: definitely can see that connection. I even thought of that myself. Because at Aha. the very least, I would say that if this gives you, if if licorice pizza gives you a glimpse into '70s Hollywood, to an extent, I mean Valley slash Hollywood, then you know, once upon a time in Hollywood is the era right before. So I, I actually was th- connecting the two okay. in my head. So I'm glad that great minds do in I'm fact I'm glad Lincoln to know. I-, I
1: thought you were gonna say you're crazy. You're out of here. Uh, that's, that's it. That's it. Podcast um, over. I, but they're both hangout movies like nothing really aside from the ending of once upon a time in Hollywood uh, you're really kind of basting in the stew that uh, Tarantino set for himself you're hanging out on set you're hanging out with Brad Pitt you're really just following uh Margot Robbie uh just throughout as she goes to see a movie I, I'm forgetting the actor Sharon Tate you're really just following a day in the life you're And I I like that. Like I was, that that was also one of my favorite movies of 2019. And the more I watch it it just is, I think it's becoming one of my favorite movies. Uh, It's getting up there, but the audience, that is a 70% audience score. And I'm like, what am I losing? Like, like, and I don't want to be hard on audiences, but can we, I love the fact that these movies exist and if you have good written characters I, it's like the Sunny Gang I could watch the Sunny Gang go anywhere like I don't need like they, they don't need yeah. a plot they just need like a prompt so that's because they're well written characters and uh, that's one of Paul Thomas Anderson's specialty and I'm, yeah well yeah
0: because in both Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and this it's more about Exploring the world at, not at a a slow pace, but just not at a rushed pace. Like You can really, like you said, bask in those worlds, in that setting, and just see what life was like. And that really is something I enjoy in a lot of period pieces. Just what was day-to-day life like back then? How did people carry on their business? What upset people? What interested people? What was the context uh, for things that we know... Like, the gas crisis, they bring that up. And again, it's in the- con- My
1: parents, my parents remembered that, like-
0: <laughs> Yeah, yeah, my parents probably did too. Uh, it, it's, it's one of those things where, it's almost like also, like, Mad Men, for example. We know from our own perspective, many decades later, these big historical events, but what was it like in the actual context with characters that we've now come to know who are part of that world? So, I, in that sense, I enjoy taking my time with that world and seeing different parts of it. And yeah, you know, with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, you know, unfortunately, there's a like a preconceived idea of what Tarantino's movies are like because so many previous ones are so action packed that you know, if he does want to take his time. Then that's just not what his viewers or his yeah you know, what what some fans come to expect. But I think in actuality, really big, uh, ma- like hardcore Tarantino fans would actually love it because they get more of his dialogue and character study that he was known for in his earlier works. So again, not to like bash on like, uh, casual audiences, but it's sometimes something that they are forced to buy into, or at least something that they're marketed to is. Oh, like this is a work. This is this is something or a genre you like, or an auteur that you like. Well, this is how we're gonna package them for all these things that they've done before. So when they do something different, they don't really expect anything else. Yeah. Because um, that's another thing. Paul Thomas Anderson, you mentioned before, he's not like a mainstream director per se. He is an auteur, like a Tarantino. He's like a filmography guy. That you'll have your day with and you'll explore and you'll say, this is my favorite of his this is my least favorite. You know, he, he has that name brand recognition, which is why he's able to make a movie like this. That doesn't star two already established actors. He can find two actors and discover them and write a movie that is paced much differently than other movies that are being
1: released. Right. Yeah, now. Yeah. I kind of like put him in the camp as like, uh, there's ways I compare him to Tarantino but uh, there, I would put him more in the camp of like the Coen brothers, where it's like they're very they're not very niche, but they're pretty niche in their movie and their filmmaking and their their fans. And every once in a while they have that they have a hit. And I'm not talking about a cult hit. I'm talking about like a, uh, a critical hit because uh, Lebowski kind of grew from a fan base. But it took them a while. Like, you know, Fargo. Uh, no Country for Old Men. I'll even put True Grit up there. But now they're making their movies on Apple Plus and uh, Netflix. Paul Thomas Anderson had, a, like, I, there's a lot of people I'm always, whenever I'm talking to uh, just people about movies and favorite filmmakers and stuff, a lot of people have not seen Paul Thomas Anderson's movies, except maybe There Will Be Blood. And maybe they just saw it way back when in uh, 2008 or nine when it came out. Uh, they remember the, his performance. Right, right. I, I mean, I think one of the reasons is that his movies all
0: very look differently because they always take place. They, I mean, he's made a few other movies that took place in the 70s, Boogie Nights or Inherent Vice, but yeah, like, There Will Be Blood is such a different movie than the rest of his catalog, and you could say the same thing maybe about um, Magnolia or uh, Phantom Threat. He just... It it, it it there's a feel and a look that's totally different, and I I like that about him too. But I feel like uh, it's not like Tarantino that all of his movies have a certain feel to it, like in a, they're all part of maybe the same world. I think he is a very div- Paul Thomas Anderson is very diverse director, and so it's hard to exactly pin down on the surface at least, you know what makes a movie that you can say oh that's Paul Thomas Anderson. But when you do you watch it. all his films. Then you actually then you actually can connect it. It's a little more nuanced. Why would you do that? Why would you do that? I, he was maybe going to be my boyfriend.
1: Listen, young lady, you don't bring this idiot to Shabbat dinner here.
0: Listen, Dad, he's an atheist and an actor, and he's famous. But he's Jewish. He was going to take me out of here, Essie. Don't you even look at me. Don't you even look at me. You're always oh. looking at me. I what are you doing? I didn't say anything. What are you doing? What are you thinking, huh? I'm Essie. I work for Mom and Dad. I'm perfect. I'm a real estate agent.
1: Alana doesn't have her life together. Alana brings home stupid boyfriends all the time.
0: I mean... I knew it i knew that was what you were thinking you're always thinking things you thinker you thinker you think things
1: i know i'm not the first person to say this but he is my generation's or maybe gen x's but he is uh my generation's robert altman uh because robert altman has been that kind of director maybe like you know he did the fir- he did the movie version of mass mash i should say uh he did uh, Gosford Park. He did The Player. And a lot of those are uh, vignettes. Like scenes leading up to maybe a... I mean, MASH, the movie ends in like a 20-minute football game in <laughs> in the Korean War. But it, it's a lot of vignettes with the string of a plot. And, uh, you know, Robert Altman has... Robert Altman has has got his accolades and nominations but has also been very niche for a uh, mainstream crowd. Yeah, I think well I think
0: you get a sense that Paul Thomas Anderson is is influenced by directors of that time and maybe if you ask him he, he could say that Robert, Robert Altman is an influence too, but uh I he he seems to be like a director who Knows his, who's done his homework, who's oh like, yeah, no, real, he, yeah, who's really knowledgeable of very much so film history, which is maybe why he he draws on so many different time periods and, and genres. Um, and he doesn't really make, if anything, I feel like he's made movies more often in the last ten years or so. But he only makes usually a movie on average once every four or five years. I would say four. Yeah, and so I think it's. It's I well I like yeah because his last movie was Twenty Seventeen yep. right and that was Twenty Seventeen and for for that Inherent Vice so I think he actually had more of a cluster between now and going back to There Will Be Blood but there was a time where he was making only one maybe only every five years or so and so each each one of his works stands out more in 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 that where it's like oh like he yeah he, here's another one um and it's it's easier i think once you know his work
1: to to differentiate them yeah this is his ninth uh feature but he but he he does he's been making movies for like over over 20 years yeah like 25 years it was his first film i think uh his first film i think it was before boogie nights it was a film called hard eight with a very young john c Riley. but i boogie nights for me is one of my all time if you want to you know if you want to get to know keith Boogie Nights is, to me, just why I love film, why I love – every aspect of it is perfect, especially that Alfred Molina scene, which – what it tries to do, it just – it's so tense, and the music, it just – everything just is – I love it. Uh, That's what I'm saying. He can create these scenarios with,
0: like, a pocket of the movie that has you really on edge. Like, not the whole movie will be this suspenseful, on-your-seat – feel to it but he can like put these characters in a scenario like that at any point in time in the story and all of a sudden you're because at that point you're they've been so fleshed out you get even more invested in how that plays out and it it has even more tension than a normal scene would. i'm
1: sure it's a hard sell to a lot of people uh like uh like phantom thread it's like oh who like okay daniel day lewis as a dressmaker the master like okay jo- Joaquin Phoenix as a drunk and going into early Scientology in the 1950s it's a, it it might be a hard sell and maybe a, <laughs> i don't think i'm doing a good job selling it now but the scripts are actually really funny the, like the like there's there's humor like especially with this script this script is you know not laugh a minute but <laughs> there are a lot of moments where you're cracking up i think yeah
0: yeah i i agree i i enjoyed the dynamic that alana has with her family her real life because family. i her really i thought that was really nice that they got her actual family because there are times that they are so baffled by her behavior like when she comes home in the bikini like and they're like what what's going on and she won't open the door when they knock on her bedroom uh, things like that. The dad gets mad at it. the one boyfriend who says he's an atheist. I, I got a kick great. out of that, that, which actually happened.
1: Uh, Alana, because uh, he uh, Paul Thomas Anderson has filmed a, a number of ha- Haim's, uh music videos, and they told him that story. He's like, "I'm putting like that has to go into the script." It's such a be- it's such a oh no, I can't. I'm an atheist. <laughs> I just think that's yeah. Funny. That was. I mean, it was
0: also tense, too. I think that scene as well because clearly, the dad is not going to take well to what this guy is saying, even though he's trying to be respectful about it. It's like, sorry, I, I, like, what's more uncomfortable than than that? It's like the early '70s too, and that wasn't even really much of a thing yet. Like atheism yeah. having to explain to like your girlfriend's family you don't believe in God, and uh, that was a bit unnerving. Uh, and yeah, the charm too. I I I feel like with this this director he he really dedicates himself to a specific tone. So this movie is like very very charming. Uh, I feel like Boogie Nights is a very wild movie. Yeah. Um. There will be there will be blood is a very gritty movie. Haunting.
1: I would say yes, haunting. Yes. There's a sense of there's always a sense of something bad is going to happen. Just like it did in that first scene when he falls and breaks his leg, there's always that sense of right this evil, or, or or, I guess you could say, like what he does is pretty. He's a pretty shitty human being, but there's always a sense of like he's going to set that world on fire, and he kind of does.
0: Right, it's it's very foreboding. Cause it's, That's it's a great word. <laughs> like what he's doing, he is very defiant in. Uh, what's the word i'm looking for um kind of what what what's the word when you ruin the purity of something tainted he is Well, in that movie it's it's
1: like he's uh, it's going to come to me like oh but, uh, uh, but like inherent vice is like you if you, it's like you smoked a lot of weed and you're still in the smoke you're trying to figure out yourself through the haze it's like a, uh, it is a hazy movie for sure um, uh, and then
0: you know, and then I feel like uh, phantom thread is this very like in that movie it seems the whole movie feels like you're in this very pr- like pristine
1: museum world. To add to that point, it's like you're you're walking through this uh to go with your word a museum and then you're finding out the museum is kind of an emotional wreck behind the stage. Like it, and everyone and everyone's acting, everyone's out front saying everything's fine, everything's fine, like everything's normal, everything's fine. It, yeah.
0: So if anything, if anything, Licorice Pizza is probably one of uh, is one of his least dark movies. If that makes any sense, I, a lot of the other movies that we mentioned of his, he has like much more flawed characters, and there's a lot of like worse things that are that are happening. But in this
1: one, it does. There's like a, there's like an innocence to it. That I enjoy it's a uh, flawed innocence like every kid experiences both at 25 and at 15
0: yeah yeah where it, it you know the characters are a bit bright-eyed but they it's not like they have their world totally shattered they just learn more subtle life lessons as they come into themselves and yeah like the Gary character I really enjoyed how he puts on that bravado But he does have those moments of insecurity like when he you know calls Alana but he doesn't say anything and he hangs up and then she calls back that that was a really nice vulnerable moment for him where he, he he like knows that in order for him to be successful in either acting or business he has to be that very confident person but it's not something that he could apply to everything in his life
1: he responded as every I think every fifteen year old whose younger brother has been threatened uh every fifteen year old with a waterbed business whose brother younger brother has just been threatened by John Peters is that he ruined his house. <laughs> At least his bedroom. Can we like like that whether you agree with it or not, look whether John Peters, who of course we can admit is crazy, but this is fictionalized, they're friends like Paul Thomas Anderson got his approval. Like, Hey, I'm writing a character based on you. And John is like, John said, I would never threaten the kid, but I would hit on the girl. Okay. That's what John said. Fair enough. Uh, Cause that was, it, it was, it was similar to the Sean Penn
0: character where it's like, well, here's another crazy guy. <laughs> this guy is nuts right off the bat. He's going on a rant. He's, he's threatening. He's narcissistic. He only wants to hear himself talk and he goes off the rails, <laughs> and he's
1: totally unhinged. So that's what I find so interesting. That's a funny story. Yeah. Funny story about, like, uh, just because uh, sometime last year I watched The Towering Inferno, and I do think the more I've gone through, like, a little bit of film history watching old films, William Holden has been very lucky to star in some of the best movies, like Sunset Boulevard, Bridge on the River Cry. And then he st- I was reading the behind the scenes of The Towering Inferno, which has uh, Paul Newman and uh, Steve McQueen. And they both kind of went back and forth, kind of the, almost the same way Disney and Warner Brothers went back and forth on Bugs and Mickey in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Like they they both wanted to be the lead. And then William Holden, who is kind of a very much older actor at that time, comes in and goes, I'm the lead. And it's like. It's like, no, no, like, come on. Uh, like, he had that ego about him. And he also was, uh, according to my mom, so go after her. Uh, but like all those actors at the time, they, he was a bit of a drinker. Sure. I mean, I feel like that's a tale's oldest old time in Hollywood. I'm cooler than you. Don't forget it. I don't need you to tell me whether I'm cool or not, old lady. What was that? I said, milady. I said, milady. My lady, I don't need you to tell me whether I'm cool or not. You're not cool, and your breath smells.
0: Um. So, because looking at this particular era of films or of of Hollywood, you know, early seventies, early to mid seventies, right, seventy three. I think that there. Gary has a as a moment where he says, "Oh, there's so much nudity in films now." And I think that's interesting. I think that was, when you look back, I, you could probably speak to that more than me because you did your deep dive of films throughout the eras. And yeah, I mean, from what I know, there were a lot of more like X-rated movies coming out at the time. Deep throw. And, right, right. <laughs> and this is like like a couple years before, say, Spielberg really becomes famous with Jaws and four years before Star Wars ushers in a whole era of blockbuster movies. And so this is like an interesting sort of Wild West time in Hollywood where things are getting more risque and directors have maybe a little more power in the studio to be uh, more explicit you know, sexually with violence. And um, yeah, it's an interesting commentary there, very brief and subtle, but I was like, yeah, I get that. I get why maybe this Gary
1: character would... Maybe be a little unsatisfied with the state of films in that time. Uh, I mean, I, I think that's what's great about Paul Thomas Anderson movies uh, is on on my second rewatch. I saw it as this is the girl I'm going to marry one day. I do not want her showing her breasts. This is my future girlfriend. This is uh, like I do not. He I don't want her like being naked on screen. He's he's being uh, you know, he's being a little boy about it um, That's that, I, I kind of saw it as like a Misguided protectiveness maybe. Right, but
0: he doesn't mind Though her Parading around in a bikini in that waterbed Store, which that was like One moment I was a little confused They're having this party in the Waterbed store And everyone there Looks like they're Teenagers I think that was maybe one moment where I'm like, wait a minute, what is going on? Is this the opening of a business or is this an orgy for high schoolers?
1: Oh, uh, well, I mean, he is a teenager. So like if, if you're if if Ryan Tomchek shout out to you, Ryan, if Ryan Tomchek opened up a guitar store when he was 15, because I know you went to high school with him. Don't tell me that opening night would be pretty cool. Yeah, if, if
0: if my if if my uh, friend who is a musician did that, I not to be like too uh, exclusive to people who are not in our friendship group, but yeah, I get I get it. It's like a teenager who has that space available to him, who might exploit it that way. And plus, they're water beds. I mean, the whole point of water beds, I imagine, they sold themselves on oh, it's good for your back. But I imagine
1: it's like the rotating bed sort of thing. It's it's meant to be some sort of enhancement to sex. I think that's just insult or like rubbing the salt in Alana's wound of like, you are 25. What are you doing? Walking around in a bikini. Like, what are you doing girl? Like you are, you are also a partner and you're getting jealous. She gets jealous. Uh, when Gary starts flirting with a, a girl, his like, she, she is a, um, a mess. But well, she's upset. She's getting upset also that she is jealous. Like she's
0: jealous, and on top of yes. that, she's bothered by the fact that she's jealous because she does not want to have feelings for him, and she's in denial about that. But in that moment, she cannot deny her feelings.
1: And there's something and so human about that.
0: <laughs> also, I, the, the, another key scene too is when they're they're trying to film some promotional video for that uh, mayoral candidate and then they really get oh, to yeah. the, the, the big argument where then they won't talk to each other for a while. I in that moment too, she is projecting her anger at herself onto him. And I feel like that's also like a very human thing is that she's so afraid of her feelings for him that she's going to push him away and really cut deep into his feelings so that way like he runs off. And of course she like regrets it right away as soon as she realizes how his response is. Uh but that's the thing like she's She's maybe like just as immature as he is, so she has no reason oh, very to. very much. But be, besides besides the fact that she is like literally older, she has no reason to take any high ground in terms of
1: emotional maturity. And that's the thing about Paul Thomas Anderson movies. You can write essays about them, literally. Like you could, like I'm, I imagine many a school film class have had like have watched Thomas Anderson movies, and you can write and it's probably fun to write like a thesis paper on you, on this young love in the San Fernando Valley. Uh, no, it's just, I, to the 65, uh, to the people that really didn't care for this film, I'm going to ask you one thing I bet, or I'm going to make a bet. And I'm going to ask you, uh, I bet this film sticks with you more in your head, you're thinking about it in some way, shape, or form. You're not dusting it off as like a mediocre film that you saw like on a Friday night. I think this film tends to stick with people more. And you end up thinking about it. You end up thinking like, why was she... Even when you disagree with the character's decision, you end up just... It sticks with you longer than most films. I agree. I think it's the kind
0: of movie that takes a little time to digest. Maybe sleep on it. Right, If you see... I saw it at night and I had all these thoughts about it and I, my initial impression was I liked it but I couldn't really totally process uh you know a coherent opinion about it until the next day where I could really um yeah you know, where everything that happened could really sink in formulate it's, it's a, everything right it yeah. is a bit of a long movie there is a lot that happens here and there Uh, But I think the movie also does a good job at the end of reminding us of that journey that they have. Just like the little quick snippets of them running for each other at different points in the movie as they are running towards themselves, literally, at the end. So, uh, yeah, I think it's a thinker. Yeah. And maybe if if your initial reaction is, I don't know what to think of this, like, give it time. It might warm up on you. Or it might deserve a, a second viewing. I don't know if it's like a super rewatchable movie that you go back to all the time. I feel like a lot of Paul Thomas Anderson movies are ones that yeah you go back to every now and then. They're not like super rewatchable, which is not a criticism. I'm just saying like how it's often a mood. Are you
1: gonna, it's a yeah mood.
0: how how
1: often are you gonna watch There Will Be Blood, <laughs> you know? It, like you're, when you're in the mood like it's you. I'm trying to think of like a, a wine or something, but it's or or an album. Actually, it's like and and with uh, Paul Thomas Anderson, he now has nine albums and some are like I always go back to Boogie Nights, but uh, I'm going to actually attempt to watch There Will Be Blood sometime in the future. And that's it's probably been a very long time. Uh, but last point. Oh, last point. Did you catch John C. Riley? Yes, as Herman okay. Buster. Yes. Okay. I just anyway like that is also a better on second viewing, (laughs) specifically as the actor who played Herman
0: Munster, Ed Gwynn, was that his name? Fred. Fred Gwynn. As and then playing Herman Munster, so that that was a funny little bit. I just his voice is a bit too recognizable for me to not catch that. (laughs) It's like (laughs) wait a second. I actually did rewind. I'm like oh that is him. I thought that was funny. And I think it's cool too that there are a lot of cameos in this. I think it speaks to the power of maybe Paul Thomas Anderson's status in Hollywood. That when he has a project going, that he is able to get a lot of recognizable actors to just be in like you know maybe a, a small part here or there, just to be just to be in it somehow. He Seems has like an honor. Cult. I think he is a very. I get a sense that he's very well respected in. The, the Hollywood community there. And also, I'll just say, too, that I really appreciate that he's always putting out original work. You know, he, these are original stories. And in this day and age, it's pretty hard to find new releases of something that isn't a remake or a sequel or based on something else or in some way part of an already existing franchise. So always refreshing to get completely new content.
1: And the last bit about him, it's every time, I like, he's always one director that I always love listening to talk about filmmaking because he seems like a regular like he's not like I only watch art films he's like I love more I have four kids we love Marvel in this house he has really good opinions on filmmaking and whenever someone asks a filmmaker about Marvel movies and what they're doing to the industry he always had like his opinions are to me highly valued because I, he, he might do it. He would make an interesting superhero film. The man loves Adam Sandler films. The man loves comedy. The man likes to make certain movies his way. The man has a vision. But he is... I'm just very happy for his success. And he just seems like a regular guy who has worked his way up to it.
0: Yeah, that, that yeah, we've been gushing over him this whole episode. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's because just there's a lot of respect there for you know he just has these ideas for these stories and he makes them and it's like with the marvel thing it's yeah all these big directors have their opinions but it's not like those movies stop him from doing what he's doing so this is what i want to say to you
1: um do you know who i am yeah do you know uh, who my girlfriend is barbashai sand barbashai sand sand Sand. yeah like sands like the ocean like barbashai sand no but Stry sand sand stray sand stray sand barber sand barber sand
0: so yeah i guess we can now move on to our percentage scores i imagine they'll be very positive but uh let's find out for sure so keith what is your uh percentage score for licorice pizza
1: call me biased but uh I know this film is going to get better every time I watch it, but I absolutely loved it. I I found it charming. I would put it in my top ten favorite films of twenty twenty one, and for that, I give it a ninety two.
0: Oh, very nice! Just a, a one point above the. I know. Story. I'm
1: giving it an A. I think a ninety one's a B plus. At least it was in my school.
0: Ninety one's an A minus, and ninety two is an A. How about that? Uh, that only B plus people say that. <laughs> I don't know what school you went to, but 90 and above are A's. <laughs> so, I, I don't know what, what curve you We had you to work on.
1: harder for our A's. Well, la da
0: <laughs> Bully for <La-dee-da>. you. la <laughs> da Good times uh, had by all. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, I, I, I the more I think about this movie, the more I like it. I think I was almost, not like at a loss, but I liked it fine at first. And then the more I ponder it, the more it goes up. But uh, I think right now I would give it an 85%. So uh, what does that round us up to?
1: An 88.5. 88.5%, see that is a B+. Uh, I I can't argue with that, I can't argue (laughs) with that. Okay,
0: so it is official on Licorice Pizza. We are siding with the critics. So by the time this episode is released, we'll have found out how many awards Licorice Pizza Blove have won. I know it is up for, of, of many other awards, it's like one of those movies that's pretty much up for everything, but I know it's also up for best screenplay. Uh, so That
1: has, that's the one where it has the best chance to win, and apparently I, uh, according to Johnny, uh, it's not worth the bet, because I do think... Kenneth Branagh might also win, but I guess this, uh, listening to this conversation, I'm kind of eating my words here, whatever happens. But I hope Paul Thomas Anderson finally wins his Oscar. Okay. Yeah. He's never won before. I guess he's been nominated he, a bunch of times. He's, uh, p- yeah. You know, uh, yeah. He's, he's been nominated, but he's never won. People have okay. won under him, like, uh, what's his, uh, Daniel Plainview, uh, da- Daniel Day Lewis. Oh, yeah. He's won. Uh, yeah, yeah. He, people
0: from his work have won awards. Yeah. Yes. That, that makes a lot of sense oh so yeah we'll see and um yeah we'll we'll catch you guys after the awards maybe we'll mend this conversation <laughs> as like a little bonus uh and to talk about that but uh until then guys thanks for listening and join us again for more episodes soon